Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, big news from Days of Our Lives. The show has recast the character of EJ, formerly played by James Scott from 2006 to 14. Australian-born actor Dan Furigal will assume the role next week when EJ comes home to Salem, surprising both Sammy and Lucas, who are currently having an affair. Now, I have to admit, when I first heard they were recasting the role, I was dubious. So I feel that James, who really hadn't made the hugest splash as All My Children's Ethan, became a complete sensation on days and really made the role more important to the canvas than anyone probably could have imagined. But from everything I've already heard about Dan and from what his new co-star Ali Sweeney had to say about him in our new issue, he sounds like he's going to be a great fit. And I also had the chance to interview him for an upcoming issue, and he had some really interesting things to say about his approach to the role, and he's clearly taking it seriously and is aware that he has big shoes to fill. So now I have to say I'm pretty excited for EJ to come home and shake things up in town. I am too. You know, story-wise, it feels like the perfect, juicy time to reintroduce EJ, and I feel like the fact that it that it has been several years since James left the show will make it a little easier for fans to embrace a new actor in the role. Not that this is an exact comparison, but it makes me think of how uh, B&B's Ridge recast when Torsten K took over for Ron Moss was less of a shocking transition between two very different actors because the show waited several years to recast, you know? Uh, Billy Miller coming in to play Jason on GH falls into the same category. It's not that, that Days viewers won't have an adjustment to make. I think it's just a lot less jarring than it would have been if James's version of EJ was there on a Friday and Dan started the next Monday. Another recast that we are spotlighting in the new issue of the magazine is that of Roger Howard, who returned to GH last week in a new role, that of hiker Dr. Austin, who delivered Maxie's baby. So he was dealing with a different kind of challenge, not taking over for another actor to play an existing character, but playing a new character on a show where he has previously played two other characters, first Todd and then Franco. And uh, in my interview with him, he talked about how every time he's in a scene with a character that Austin hasn't met before, uh, up to and including Liz, who was the widow of the last character he played, he kind of has to start anew figuring out how his new character would react to that character, one who may not be new to Roger, but is new to Austin. You know, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this is going to play out. I mean, again, I'll admit I'm not the biggest fan of one actor playing multiple roles on a show, but it seems to work on GH since Michael Easton has already paved the way in a sense as well between John, Silas, and Finn. Um, you know, Roger is just such a talented and versatile actor that I don't doubt that he can pull off yet another persona. So, like, count me in for this one for sure. Um, and I totally agree with your point about quick turnarounds with recasts. You know, it definitely helps to have some distance. Uh, I spoke to Ron Carlovati, Daisy's head writer, about the show's approach in bringing EJ back. And he said with recasts, you either want to go for a similar vibe or you go for someone who looks like their predecessor. And I am definitely someone who wants to see the lookalike more than the viber, if you will. <laughs> you know, I think it's jarring when you have two actors playing the same role who look nothing alike. You know, like Abigail on Days. I mean, I kind of see Kate Nancy and Marcy Miller as playing two different roles sometimes because they do not resemble each other and they bring two very distinct personalities to Abigail. Uh, what's your preference? 
You know, sometimes a, a, a recast is a real reimagining of a character. And if the show is taking a character in a new direction, I can roll with a new look. But I definitely think a physical resemblance goes a really long way to selling a recast. I was a huge fan of Max and Gabrielle on One Life to Live. And when James DePaiva left, and they gave Max a new face, literally and figuratively, because he suffered massive burns. Uh, and under the bandages was Nicholas Walker, who just looked nothing like James DePaiva. I, I was just never in, you know, you know, there was just no essence of Max there for me. Uh, I think the most seamless recast I can think of in recent months was Brianna Lane stepping in for Amanda Seton as Brooklyn on GH. Like they couldn't pass for twins, but there was a similar enough look that when you factor in how well I think Brianna captured the vibe of that character, I was in automatically. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, with Jennifer on Days, I feel Katie McLean had the essence of the character rather than being a true lookalike for Missy Reeves, but is also super talented in her own right and really did some incredible work with the material she was given. But she wasn't necessarily Jennifer to me per se, but I could appreciate how good she was and how she fit in so seamlessly. You know, same show, I feel Stacey Heiduck has really come into her own as Kristen and Susan. You know, Stacey has been given so much dramatic material and she is fantastic at it, but also makes the goofier side of Susan work as well, which I don't know, I didn't really think about anyone other than Eileen Davidson doing that. Yeah, for sure. Now, I would throw General Hospital's Cynthia Watros replacing Michelle Stafford as Nina into the category of something that worked really well because, you know, Cynthia and Michelle don't look like twins, but there is something in the physicality that both actors bring that made the recast make sense to me, like from the moment we heard that GH was pursuing her. Uh, same show. He's only been on a handful of episodes, so this is not meant as a knock, but the Ryan Carnes to Matt Trudeau as Lucas transition was much more jarring to me as a viewer because they have such dramatically different looks. I totally get it. And in keeping with today's theme, our guest today originated the role of Lorna Devon on Another World, and after she left, the role was recast with Robin Christopher, who bore zero resemblance to her. It's <laughs> Alicia Coppola, who has had quite a journey since leaving Bay City back in 1994 so let's check in with her and see what's up. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Mara. Hello. How you doing? Doing good. Doing good. good. Living the dream. <laughs> Us <Okay>. too. Yeah. <laughs> We're all just living our best lives, aren't we? <laughs> That's right. Well, it has been a while since we've caught up, so I'm very excited to talk to you today. Yeah. Um, so we're going to take a little walk down Alicia Coppola memory lane. So let's start with, you were born and raised on Long Island outside of New York City. So what was childhood like for you and when did you get bitten by the acting bug? Childhood was lovely. I was born and raised um, in Huntington Bay and Montauk, Long Island. Um, everything was delightful, I would say. Um, you know, for the most part, I, for, yeah, for the most part, I mean, family was wonderful. Um, we had lovely homes. Everything was great until my father was diagnosed with brain cancer when I was 12. So it kind of went all downhill, you know, at 12. Um, and I was bullied in school. Um, so I was sent away to boarding school in Connecticut. Um, and I think that really was the best thing for me. Um, and the acting bug... I remember I, myself and a little girl named Paula who lived across the street from my grandmother, we would put on shows for my grandma when I was like four or five or six, you know, and we would just do like Splish Splash, you know, you know that song? Splish yep. Splash, yeah. So we would sing and we would do little skits and stuff, but it never occurred to me that you could actually make a living at it until I discovered Donnie and Marie and Cher, <laughs> Sonny and Cher. And I was like, Oh, so what we do in grandma's living room, they're doing on TV, right? So I was like, huh. <laughs> so I started to put it together. And then that all went away when I went to boarding school, because then I had to be, you know, as my guidance counselor so positively told me that I was probably not going to get into college. So I should use my boarding school for its other purpose and get myself a husband. 
helpful advice. It was helpful advice. And they were also the first people to call me when I got my first series asking for a donation. Oh, wow. And I was like, no. Um, <laughs> how do you like me now? <laughs> uh, so when you, you know, when you're surrounded by all these people who are going to be hedge fund people and stockbrokers and doctors and lawyers and, you know, all these professional careers, my mind was going there. Like, well, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, so I went to NYU and I studied and I was going to be a lawyer. Oh. And that I was, I remember I was studying for my, my, the boards, right? What the LSATs. Mm-hmm. And, um, I got an audition for remote control and I ended up getting it. And I remember, you know, being on set going, this is it. This feels, this feels right. Wow. So that's so wild. So tell us remote control was a game show on MTV, right? Correct. That's the best. <laughs> I love so, it. Was this before or after what I believe is your earliest credit on the IMDb, which is an uncredited appearance as Dukakis's party guest on Saturday Night Live, specifically the Matthew Modine hosted Edie Brickell and New Bohemians musical guest starring installment from 1988. Wow, you did your research. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I have to say I'm very highly educated to being constantly wearing Lycra. Uh, <laughs> is pretty much the, the, the beginning of my career. Yes, I, uh, I rented a, an apartment on uh, 55 East 10th Street from a woman who was a model. And so she asked me if I had ever thought of modeling. And I did some a little bit as a kid with my dad. And so she took me into Elite, into her, her booker, and they signed me that day. And that was one of my first gigs was to be background with Matthew Modine in that particular episode. And I'll never forget it. I mean, it's like, it's emblazoned um, on my brain. But, but yeah, so that was one of my first modeling gigs. And then I did modeling a little bit. I wasn't the best model, but I really, I wasn't. Um, and then that just turned into the, the audition for remote control. And I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. So tell us about doing remote control. I mean. I was a very uh, ac- avid viewer of that show. Um, and anyone I feel sort of in that age range remembers it quite vividly. Yes. Um, remote Control was actually shot in Spanish Harlem, right? So, and they would send a car for me and Adam Sandler because we were in the same dorm. And it was just crazy. I mean, I would go through the, the hair and the makeup and it was that 80s big, big hair and big makeup and... And, and the tight little lycra skirts. And I mean, the, I still have the, my, uh, my little cropped black leather jacket from remote control. I That's kept it all awesome. these years. Yeah, and it's very heavy. It's got all sorts of like gadgets on it. Um, but it, it, it was great fun. It was great fun. And I learned there really the skills that I now have or have allowed myself to have in my uh, comedic timing from all of those guys, from Colin Quinn and Dennis Leary, Adam, Ken Ober, um, Mario Joyner. I mean, I I was really kind of one of the guys and got to be privy to so much. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but Ben Stiller directed Colin Quinn in Going Back to Brooklyn. And if you Google it, you will see me and what is her name, Camille? who's the wife, the Beverly Hills housewife. Yes, she was in it too. And we're all in it. And it, it, it really, it's like a total um, uh, beautiful tribute to the, to the 80s, uh-huh. to the late 80s, which, which for me was when New York City was a time and not a place. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Wait, give me an Adam Sandler story from back in the day. You know what? He was just a really goofy, nice boy. You know, he was very funny, very talented, um, and very sweet. He was always sweet. And I do remember, though, when um, when I just moved out here, I was walking down, I want to say Rodeo, and 
there was Adam and somebody else sitting there. And I I could feel his eyes on me and I knew that he was checking me out. And as I got closer, he said, oh, it's just you, Coppola. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, sorry to disappoint, Sandler. (laughs) He was always a very nice, nice guy. That is amazing. (laughs) Just you. (laughs) Right. That's so great. Now, you were basically fresh out of college in 1991 when you made your daytime debut on Another World playing the role of Lorna Devitt. So tell us your Another World casting story. Okay. So first of all, her name was going to be Mavis. Mavis Lane was the original name for Lorna Devon, Mavis Lane. I'm glad that they, I still have my audition sides. Yeah, so my, my, my dad died in January of 91, and I started Another World in April. I just turned 22, I believe, um, or 23, I'm not sure. I'd have to do the math. Um, and it was only, it was, I was such a damaged, angry, sad, anxious and depressed young woman. And so I was perfect. I was born to play Mm -hmm. Lorna. It's almost like my dad died so I could get the role of Lorna. I know it's a big, it's a big hit for the team to take, but it's almost like, you know, it it, it was a perfect storm. It really was. And I remember being at the audition and I think I was snippy to the casting assistant or whomever was sitting at the desk. And I remember being called in to, I, I think it was Michael, who, um, Michael Labson, who I think was the showrunner at the time. And I remember him asking me, are you difficult? And I was like, I'm really not. I, this is just what, you know, i am just been going through some stuff, but I'm actually very lovely. I'm just, you know, it's just me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, okay, well, you have the role. So... <laughs> And I remember it was only supposed to be maybe three months. It was only a reoccurring role. And then the minute they saw Linda Dano and I on screen was when this monster took over. And it's, it's very interesting because I've now interviewed on Bootstrap Bitch, Maurice Bernard and Michelle Stafford. And all three of us have a very similar story about how we began. You know, Sonny's character was only supposed to be there for like, you know, a week. And Michelle was only supposed to be there to run somebody over and then leave. And it's turned into her and him like this 30 year career, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. Um, And I wonder to this day, if I never left, what would Lorna, what would Lorna be? Mm -hmm. And who would Matt Crane have married? You know, there are a lot of questions. <laughs> There's a lot of questions. Who would Matt Crane marry? That's true. If Robin Christopher, if I didn't leave, Matthew would be alone with a cat. That's right. You did the right thing. You did the right thing. I, I took one for the team. Became unemployed. And not rich like those other two that I just mentioned. So that Matthew could have a hot redheaded wife and two kids. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, we'll get into the uh, the Lorna Felicia relationship in just a moment. But in the beginning, uh, Lorna had eyes for Matt Corey, played by Matt Crane, and uh, Lorna seduced him away from Jenna, played by Ala Karat, which paved the way for Jenna and Ricky Paul Goldenstein to get together. Uh, Lorna managed his singing career and his two devoted fans of the hit single "Lady Killer." We thank you for that. <laughs> um, but I was so into that whole storyline. I just loved the show at the time and remember it so vividly. What was it like to work with those three actors that I mentioned who were so central to like the younger set you were part of in the beginning? Oh, wow. Um, I immediately fell in love with Matthew and um, RPG and Allah. Allah and I live literally five seconds away from each other and we're still good friends and talk and I'm a huge fan of her skincare line, Muvala Skincare. Um, it, it, again, another world at that time and working with those three, it was a time. It really was a time. It was a special moment in my personal history. Um, We were all a little damaged. We were all um, just 
kind of shadow boxing God and trying to figure out growing up, you know, we were all in our early twenties and we were, you know, put into this, into this show, um, and they were writing for us and we're young kids making good money. And it was a home. It, it really was. And, and all the older actors like Steven and Charles and Linda and Anna, all of them, Vicky, they kind of were our surrogate parents. And they would literally check us, you know, like, like a big mama dog will slap the puppy. They, we learned from them. Um, but, you know, Ricky and Matthew and Ala, they, I will never forget them. I just, I loved them and they, and they embraced me. They, they very easily could have, you know, squeezed me out or been not nice because they were there before me, but they were lovely. Mm -hmm. um, now, Lorna did turn out to be the daughter of Felicia Gallant, who, as you mentioned, was played by Linda Dano and Lucas, who was played by John Aprea. Um, so tell us about your relationship with both of them. Well, at the time, I don't think that, I mean, it was a big deal. I remember sitting there with my manager and Linda and the heads of NBC and they were gonna break this huge story. I had no idea how huge it was gonna be and how, and how big Lorna was going to become. And I think the chemistry that Linda and I had on screen was really rare. And because my father had just passed and my father and John Aprea were very similar, there was this deep connection to John. And what is also interesting is that I do not believe the writers knew about my father because when they wrote John's passing, that to me was actually the first time that I dealt with the passing of my own father. Was on, as you were watching it, was me actually dealing with it. Wow. So, um, I mean, first of all, to be able to work with such great powerhouses like, like Linda and, and John was a gift, but then to be, to be embraced so warmly by them and the writers giving me the gift of the catharsis of the free therapy. Um, it was, it was truly, you know, paramount to my, to my healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, as Lorna, uh, you also had a big story with Grayson McCooch, who played Morgan, and you actually knew Grayson before. Grayson, so tell, us, tell us that about that dynamic. So Grayson's sister, Hannah McCooch, was two years above me at boarding school at Kent, and Grayson was, I think, a year, two years or three years below me, and he became my brother's mentor when my brother Matt went to school. Wow. Um, so I've known Grayson and his family for years. Uh, so, I, it, and it's funny, I, I just watched some, a fan taught me how to watch episodes on YouTube because I didn't know that you could do that. <laughs> and I watched the scenes that were, deal, were uh, the preamble to Lorna's rape. And you can kind of see the chemistry between he and I there that you could tell that there was a shorthand. Um, and uh, he's great. I mean, he's, he's a lovely, very natural actor and just a, a good guy. Mm -hmm. um, in 1993, he won the Soap Opera Digest Award for Outstanding Younger Lead Actress. So what do you remember about that night? Oh, God. I want to cry. Um, I just remember, I remember the dress I was, it was like a, an Armani white skirt and like this very glittery, like, you know, Felicia Gallant broad shouldered blazer uh, with like sequins on it. And I remember my mom was there with me and I was sitting next to Chris Bruno, who I was dating at the time. And, um, and I just remember when they called my name, it was like how, how I'd gone from being so down to almost like, you know, being like, I felt like on top of the world that night. And I felt like I was beat, like the little girl who'd been bullied. And I remember saying to one of my childhood friends, I should thank if I win the girl who bullied me. Cause I'll never forget her because she inspired me to just, if you tell me I can't do something, now I'm going to do it even if I didn't want to do it because spite has become my favorite emotion. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that night, I just remember thinking, 
to all the kids who've been bullied or shoved into lockers or people, you know, making me eat lunch alone. And then, you know, going through the whole issue with my dad's illness and his ultimate passing, I was standing up there with this Soap Opera Digest Award, which by the way, hold please. (laughs) Here it is. Oh, wow. Look at that. Looking spiffy. Looking spiffy, right? I dusted it and everything. But yeah, <laughs> in 1993, I mean, this went, meant the world to me. It, it, it really meant the world to me. And, and uh, it just kind of showed me that there is a reason for everything. And there is, if you just, you know, stay, stay the course, stay the course. And I kind of went during that time where the day took me. And the day took me to winning that award. And, it, you know, really, it's, it's one of the highlights of my life. So thank you. Of course, the next year I lost. <laughs> we weren't going to bring that up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry about that. At least I was nominated. Yes, right. You can honor just be nominated. Just <laughs> <laughs> be nominated and, and get, a, you know, get an invite to the party. Mm-hmm. So uh, you may recall 1994 is the year you lost the Soap Opera Digest Award. We think of it as the year you chose to leave another world. Uh, why did you make that decision? Uh, and, you know, I'm assuming it was like the end of your contract, but what prompted your thinking uh, to leave Lorna behind? Well, if, I, if, if, if I'm remembering correctly, when, when they asked me to come on as a contract role, I remember saying no. And um, at that time, actors were still kind of being uh, pigeonholed as daytime or a film actor or a theater actor or a television actor, right? And I remember saying, okay, I will, I will do this. We'll do a three-year contract retroactively. So I've already served my time that I've been here. So we'll just tack on whatever we're going to tack on to make it the full three years. And I remember at the end of it, I think I kind of felt like if I didn't make a jump, then I was going to get really, really comfortable. And I felt like there was more that I wanted to do. And the, I left, I think it was the day before Christmas Eve, or maybe a couple of days beforehand. Um, I was my last day. And you have to understand, they worked me, I worked five days a week. And I worked around the clock. I mean, I, I worked a, a lot, which was a huge compliment. And I enjoyed every minute, but I was also really tired. And I wanted, I, I wanted to take a break. And... So I, I had applied to Shakespeare and Company, which is up in Massachusetts. And it was like an intensive. And Charles Keating helped me, um, helped me get in because he worked with me on my, on my monologue to audition for it. And so I left Another World that, that December and immediately put myself into a Shakespearean intensive so that if there were any bad habits that I picked up, which I never did because I, I don't... I don't know what people think because soap opera actors are the hardest working actors anywhere. The amount of dialogue, we, which is why like when I look at dialogue, people say, are like, how do you, you just looked at it and you memorized it. That's a, that's a skill that Linda taught me because I would look at Linda who just like look at it once and have it, you know? Um, so I know this is a roundabout answer to your question, but I kind of felt like if I didn't do it then, I never would. And to this day, I often wonder if I made the right choice. The show was canceled in what? When was it canceled? 99. Right. So really, I would have had maybe another six years on the show, maybe, if they would have kept writing for Lorna. So it it was going to have an end date. So when I look back, I wonder if I made the right choice because I was in such a safe and comfortable environment. But I also know I made the right choice because if I didn't jump, I, I just would have 
I just would have stayed forever. And then where would I have been? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think I also needed a change of scenery. I, I had been in, you know, on the East Coast my whole life at that point. I was at, what, 25, 26 when I ultimately moved to L.A., 27 maybe, because um, I know I was back and forth for two years. Uh, but I think, I think that's why I, I chose to leave. Mm -hmm. yeah, makes all the sense in the world. Right. And really looking at your body of work, I mean, you've worked in so many projects. You've worked so steadily in primetime episodics for everything from Touch by an Angel to Sports Night to NCIS. You've had longer stints like Trinity, Cold Feet, multiple seasons of Jericho. Um, so a, once you started booking roles so easily, or maybe it wasn't easily, but did you maybe think you did make the right decision? And is there a primetime project that's closest to your heart? Yes. I, I always felt good when I was working and then that reinforced, oh, I did make the right choice. Mm -hmm. But when you're not working and you just left a job that paid you very handsomely, you're like, what have I just done? And is there a primetime job that, yes, I, I would have to say Jericho. Jericho was, again, a, a place. And a t I'm sorry, a time. Jericho was a time. Um, it, it was a special moment. We all loved each other. We all got along really, really well. Uh, I loved that. And also I would have to say why women kill. Mm -hmm. Why women kill is probably maybe it's neck and neck with Jericho. It, it depends on the day. <laughs> but, but, but working with Jennifer Goodwin and Lucy Liu and Mark Cherry, I mean, it was a dream. It was, I'm a very funny person, naturally. I have a, I have an, a cutting edge humor. Um, not everybody gets it, but those who do find me to be, you know, a barrel of monkeys. <laughs> few people have ever hired me. Chuck Lorre has hired me. Those are the only, well, Chuck Lorre, and I've only ever worked with Charlie Sheen in a sitcom and Ashton Kutcher. Those are the three men that I've worked with and John Cryer, because I only did two and a half men. And I did a pilot with, um, called Sugar Hill with, with Charlie. And so it's Chuck Lorre, John Turtletaup, because I was kind of the comedic element in Jericho. I was like the, the, the funny girl in the drama. And Mark Cherry. So I feel like I have really great people who find me funny, but to play Sheila Moscone on Why Women Kill was just a career highlight and really, really kind of solidified into a lot of people's minds. Oh, Alicia's not, because for a while there, I was the girl who could just cry on cue because that's all I did on Another World. <laughs> all I did was cry, scream, beat my chest and pull my hair out. And I was really good at it because I had a lot to cry about. But, you know, there's this whole other side of me. And uh, it's, it, it's interesting because when I look back at remote control where I started and see the seeds were planted by all those, those funny men and to see how much I retained of it. And once I allowed myself to not give a damn what people thought of me anymore or to not, and to have the levity that comes with having a loving husband and kids. And I just, you know, allowed, allowed that out. And I, you know, have been rewarded with, you know, with that role, Sheila on Why Women Kill, which was just so much fun. I love that. Um, now you've also had the experience of being part of a large scale blockbuster kind of production like National Treasure, Book of Secrets. Yeah. So that was produced by uh, Jerry Bruckheimer and it starred Nicolas Cage, Helen Mirren, Ed Harris, Harvey Keitel, among other, you know, huge names. So I'm so curious what the audition process was like for that film. Well, again, John Turtletaub directed that film um, and he was executive producer of Jericho. And I remember one day we were on set and he came up to me and he said, I have something for you. And I said, great. He goes, you're going to have to audition. I said, that's fine. And I went in and I auditioned and I didn't hear for a while. And then I heard that I got it. And it was like, oh my God, I was going to be Harvey Keitel's partner in National Treasure 2. It was fantastic. And we shot um, here, uh, but we first shot in South Dakota. So there we are, John Voigt, Helen Mirren, Ed Harris, Diane, 
Nicolas Cage, Harvey Keitel, descending onto this small, I forget the name of the town in South Dakota. And we're like at the Ramada Inn, all of us. Um, I think Nicholas had a, had a house somewhere, but the rest of us were in this, this mo like motel hotel. And they would pick us all up in a white van and Helen would always have a pillow with her. And I remember, um, she liked to chew gum. I, I chew gum. I'm a worse gum chewer because I can crack it. And so I, I was handing out gum to everybody and Ed Harris wouldn't take the gum. I was like, take some gum. Ed, Ed, take some gum. No, oh, hold on. Remind me to tell you about the story of getting, of getting to South Dakota with Ed Harris, who I stalked. Um, finally, Helen, just like, take the gum, Ed. Just take the gum, you know, in her high British voice. Otherwise, she's never going to shut up. <laughs> Just, I mean, she was amazing. And I remember having to get changed on top of Mount Rushmore. There was no bathroom. There was no nothing. And she held a sheet or a towel in front of me. And there I am getting, you know, naked in front of Dame Helen Mirren. And she was incredible. And she has a tattoo. She has a tattoo right here. And I remember commenting on it. And I remember thinking that's really, really cool to have a tattoo there. So I got one here. But um, she was just so inspiring. And, 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 and John Voight was, I remember asking him if he wanted to go get a manicure pedicure with me. He was like, no. <laughs> no, dear, I don't. I don't want to do that with you. And he was like handing out cartons of cigarettes to like, I, I don't know what he, he was the most interesting, interesting man. And Harvey had the room next to me and he was, he was delightful. And we basically all would throw our laundry into the laundry machine because there was all of us in like one laundry machine. So we were all doing each other's laundry and they're like, is this yours? Is this yours? It was fantastic. It, it, it was, again, it was a career highlight. And, uh, and I, I loved every minute of it. But getting there, I'm not a good traveler. So we were in the airport and our flight was delayed and we didn't know how long it was going to be delayed due to weather. Now, South Dakota, like we got, we got waylaid. I was only supposed to be there for four days. I was there for like three weeks because of the rain. So for some reason, it decided to just be a deluge. And, but getting there, I spotted Ed and I was like, I'm just going to tail him. I'm just going to do what he does. I'm going to go where he does. And hopefully I get to sit next to him on the plane. So I'm tailing him all around this airport. I don't forget where the, the mid, the mid, the layover was. So he finally sees me and I'm like, hi, I'm Alicia. I'm in the movie with you. I'm Harvey Keitel's, but I go into my home. He's come on, come on, let's, let's go to the bar. I was like, all right, let's go to the bar. He's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drive. We're going to rent a car and we're going to drive because this is going to take forever. I'm like, okay, I'm with you, Harris. Let's go. Let's go rent a car. But turns out that they did get, get flights out and he went on one. And then I was sad that I wasn't on with him. He tried to get me on with him, but it didn't work out. Um, but you know, it, it, it was, it was a remarkable experience. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I, love it. I feel very denied the Ed Harris, Alicia Coppola road trip movie. <laughs> it would have been a great road trip, yeah. especially yeah. if you throw in some tequila, <laughs> it becomes, you know, that hangover part three. <laughs> love Harris and Coppola. It would be a lot of fun. So uh, in 2018, you recurred on one of my favorite primetime shows, Empire, as an assistant district attorney named Megan, who was going after the Lions. And you got to mix it up with the uh, headliners of that series, Terrence Howard and Taraji P. Henson. So tell us about that and about your time on Empire just in general. So I remember when I got the audition, they said, we're looking for somebody who can go toe to toe with... Terrence Howard. And I said to them, guys, I got three kids. I got laundry scarier than Terrence Howard. <laughs> this is, this is not, stop it. Like, what else do you have? So I auditioned, I got the role. And I have to say, again, it was a career highlight for me. I made very dear friends with Andre Royo. We hit it off like, like a house on fire. I mean, immediately we were like, we met each other and went deep. 
<laughs> immediately. I loved Terrence Howard. I love working with him. Uh, Taraji was fantastic. Just, just, I, I would just love getting on the plane to go into Chicago. I loved the weather. I loved the city. I loved the food. I loved my hotel. They knew me so well. They put me in the same room every time. They knew what I ate. I mean, everybody was so accommodating. They were, they were just delightful. And also, I would say just slightly lower than Chuck Lorre's set for food because when you're on a Chuck Lorre show, there is just entrees upon entrees upon entrees on film night. There's food trucks, there's sushi, there's Italian, there's... And on Empire was quite possibly the finest catering. I, I got fat there because all I did was eat lunch <laughs> and I would take the lunch home from my dinner at the hotel. I just, I loved everything about that job. Everything about that job. Well, I loved seeing you on it because I am a huge Empire fan. Um, now on the personal front in 1999, you got married to your husband, Anthony Michael Jones, who General Hospital fans may remember for his long running recurring role as Father Coates, who among other claims to fame presided over the wedding of Robin and Patrick and the non-wedding of Maxie and Spinelli. So how did you two meet? Oh, he would love to answer this question because he loves to tell this story but he's not here. So he was dating uh, a friend of mine and I was in a middle of t two guys trying to figure out what I'm doing with my life. I mean, I, I didn't date at the time. It was like Titans colliding in air. That was like my dating experiences. <laughs> um, so I, I met him through my friend and we would, I was the third wheel and I would hang out with them. And I remember my boyfriend at the time, uh, who is an enormously talented writer, he wrote a screenplay for me and our actor dropped out. And I remembered, oh, Anthony, because at that point I think he and my friend had broken up. And I said, oh, I, rem I have a guy. I, I know he's, an, he's a nice actor. Let me call him up. So I called Anthony and he met me at a bar and I gave him the script and he said, hey, by the way, do you want to go out? Because I kind of realized I might have been with the wrong girl. And I said, well, no, I couldn't possibly do that because I'm trying to get into the writer's good graces and I don't want to hurt my, my friend. So no, we, this, no. And... He was like, okay, fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, friendships last longer than most relationships, so absolutely fine. So we did the reading and we became friends and we would just chat on and off on the phone. And then the girl found out about it and I shut it down because it made her unhappy. And so that was it. That was that, that was it. And I'm still trying to get into the good graces of the writer, okay? So then I decide I'm gonna be going back and forth, you know, to LA. And when I finally moved here, Anthony was out here and he just called. I was the only other person he knew other than our friend, Eric Woods, who was also on another world. Mm -hmm. And so he was staying at Eric's house and he called me, Eric gave him my number. And he said, do you want to go see like speed the plow? I think with Madonna. And I said, yes, but are you going to feed me first? <laughs> I, you know, cause at that time, sometimes dating was the way you got to eat. You know, especially I was just, I was, that was one of my sallow periods, right? <laughs> so, um, he, we went out to dinner and we never went to the, to the play and we just sat there and talked and he still kind of felt the same about me. And I was like, oh, well, let's see. And I kind of felt something for him. And it was that night that he admitted to me that he had seen me a couple of years prior to him even starting to date. No, he was dating. He wasn't dating her at the time, but he remembers seeing me the night that I got back from Shakespeare and company at Columbus. What was that? The restaurant 
called Columbus. I don't remember seeing him, but he was at the bar and he remembers seeing me. He remembers what I was wearing. And he said that he had this, just this like profound feeling that, that he was meant to know me. And that it's like somehow I just, you know, was like the angels descended. He had no idea what the hell he was getting himself into. <laughs> he should have kept drinking and run. <laughs> and, but, and so then when he met me with my friend, when my friend introduced me, it was like, oh my God, that's the girl. Oh my God. I love it. Oh, it's really interesting. It is, you know, it's, it's, he tells it much better than I do. Um, You know, he has hand gestures. He, he does the whole thing. So (laughs) that's how we met. So that's how we met. And, and really quite frankly, I think we moved in together like two weeks later and it's been going on 22, 22 years this July. Amazing. That's pretty awesome. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So he didn't know what the hell he was getting into. Did you know what the hell you were getting into? <laughs> yeah. No, but I knew what I wasn't getting into. <laughs> and sometimes knowing what you're not going to be getting is just as important as knowing what you will be getting. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. So, so I had a, you know, I, I, I had a, he was a very, he comes from good stock. You know what I mean? He's a kind of chop wood, carry water man. I mean, he's a deep thinking and very warm hearted and gentle and humble, which I think complements me very, very well. Um, and he comes from a really great family and there wasn't the kind of fracture that I had with other relationships, you know? So he's always kind of been the dependable one and the solid one where I liken it to I'm the kite and he's the string. Huh. Mm-hmm. He holds my string because without him, no bueno. <laughs> the whole operation falls apart. It, the whole thing falls apart. Exactly. Exactly. You have three children. Tell us about them and about their personalities. Okay. First of all, I never bargained for three children. So I have to say that the third one was was not expected. And I do remember when we, when we had to tell our eldest about sex, he, he worked on it for a little bit in his head and then he came to me and he's like, so wait a second, if you did what you did that makes the baby, certainly you understood the ramifications of your behavior. In which case, Greta is a mistake. I'm like, well, we call her a happy faux pas. Greta, which is also where I got my philosophy of Gretaology, because Greta happened and Greta was not supposed to happen. So I have three kids. The first one, uh, Milo, is exceptionally brave and courageous and living his authentic self. My middle one is my Spicoli, who just like sits with her hand down her pants, a remote and like pizza and a beer at like 11. She's just, she's just like my stoner baby. And uh, and then my third one, Greta is, you know, like type A works all day on her school work, then plays high level soccer club practices, you know, three hours a day. They're all could not be any different. And the fact that they came out of my body amazes me every single day because they're just so much better than me. They're just so much better than me. And so when I, when I look back and when I, you know, at the end of my life, which I hope is very long, I know that I contributed to the goodness of humanity by giving birth to these three wonders. That's awesome. I mean, because I got to tell you something. This is the other thing I've learned about parenting. You got to have some set of balls to be a parent in today's day. You really do. You have to have some nerve because parenting, I mean, I don't remember it being this difficult when I was little. It was much easier. You know, crack miles and all. It was just much easier. This is, this is rough parenting today in this age and the digital, this social, the whole, it's, it's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Right. 
and I love people who, you know, who, who say, you know, I, I have, I have a couple of friends who say, I don't, I don't, I've never wanted kids. I'm like, thank God, you know that. Cause if you didn't want kids and you had them, you'd be in jail. <laughs> <laughs> you would, or you'd like abandon them at the fire station. <laughs> Not the fire station. <laughs> Where do they abandon children? At fire stations. <laughs> <laughs> time frame I, you, like, you can't do it now I can't do it at 11 right I think you have to do it at like you know a week <laughs> oh my gosh I have to do it when they're all at the fireman's ball <laughs> exactly um now in addition to acting child rearing you are also a published author and uh in 2013 you published gracefully gone which uh explores your father's life and uh passing and your life and your relationship with your father and tell us about the experience of writing it and about the book itself when my father was dying i kept a journal that documented just what i was going through and what he was going through what our family was going through what it was like you know and then when he died, my mom handed me my dad's manuscript, which I had a very faint memory of him doing, which basically told this, the tale of his, uh, you know, kind of retrospectively, retroactively from his diagnosis through, through remission. And the idea, I remember sitting in my apartment on West 87th Street, struggling between the actor and the writer, not knowing what I'm going to do. Am I leaving another world? What am I doing? And I remember sitting at my desk, which I still have today, and going, I'm going to somehow splice this together so that it's a decade-long journal told from two completely different points of view and write a book. And I just remember having this feeling as I'm crying, boo-hooing over my love life and my you know, career. Like, so cut to 20-something years later, and my dear friend Diane Farr, who's a published author, who helped me and three pregnancies, because that's what I would do during the pregnancies when I wasn't working. Um, I was just toying with it and putting a, cutting and pasting, like literally cutting and pasting the actual paper and trying to figure out how to do it. And, and I finally, my husband said to me, because I didn't have a series at the time to promote it, so I didn't really have a platform. And my husband said, why don't you just self-publish? And it had already been written. The only thing I had to do is kind of put it together and format it and, and, uh, and find somebody to help me self-publish. And I walked into my local Fantastic Sam's to get threaded, as one does, and there's this woman there who offers to take my kid to the bathroom so that I could continue getting my eyebrows done. And then I think, well, that's weird. I've just let this strange lady go into the bathroom with my kid. <laughs> I better go and see that everything's all right. So I halt the threading process and I'm like, who are you? What are you? What do you do? And she's like, my name is Jessica, and I help people self-publish their books. And I'm like, you're hired. Oh, my God. Again, again, everything happens for a reason. And so she helped me do it. And I did it. And it sold more in like a week than most independently published books do in a year. And I, and I did it because I wanted, it's always been very, very, very important for me to people know because I don't know anybody who hasn't suffered a loss. I mean, you can't swing a dead cat and not hit somebody who hasn't had somebody they love die. And I wanted those people to know that they're not alone. That even if you think you're alone, grieving alone is never a good idea. So if my book could be the thing that had them know that the whole family goes through it, and that even if they didn't know me, I was there with them then, and my father was there with them, then that just, that just made me feel good. And through the book, through writing the book, I've been able to meet some really incredible people. Uh, and I've been on the board of, I'm a global ambassador for the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation, and I'm on the board of Heal Grief, um, which is um, a foundation that ha has a whole other aspect to it called Actively Moving Forward, which is for college kids. I mean, a lot of people don't know that, you know, one in three college kids are suffering alone from the loss or the, the terminal diagnosis of a loved one. Um, and so now we have an app 
Uh, it's the Heal Grief app where people can go into different rooms. Uh, there's an over 30 and under 30 and it's monitored carefully where people can grieve together because nobody should have to grieve alone. Mm -hmm. um, and so the book has really kind of given me many paths uh, it was also the inspiration for the short film that I wrote and starred in and directed, which won uh, a couple of festival awards. So <clears throat> I think the process of writing that book, and I think when there is trauma, which I think my father's illness and death was definitely traumatic for me, with an artist, which I consider myself, I keep retelling the story over and over in ways so that I can really process it. And I think that's helpful to everybody to just keep repeating it, but in different ways. We're going to come at it from this way, and now I'm going to come at it from this way. You know, I just hope that my work, whether it's the book or whether it's the work that I do with the organizations or whether whether it's my short film or my writing or my stand-up, my podcast that I'm doing now, Bootstrap Bitch, I just hope some of it lands. You know, I think sometimes, you know, as an actress, you wonder if anybody's watching what you're acting in, if you're ever going to get another job. When you write a book, you wonder if anybody's ever going to read it. The podcast, you wonder if anybody's going to listen to it. You know, it's like sometimes I feel like the tree that falls in the woods, but nobody's there. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I just keep put. I just keep creating and putting it out there, and I figure the the right people will find it. Actually, writing the book was the. I think I gave myself permission to be more than 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 what I was, and to and to challenge myself in all ways. Well, as someone who read the book, it is beautiful, and I do recommend it to anyone. Just anyone. I mean, it's just an interesting story. Period. Whether or not you've suffered loss, but you did mention the podcast, so let's talk about that. Tell me the genesis of the podcast, the genesis of the name, and you know what your plans are with it. Okay, so COVID happened, and my house was under construction. We were in an apartment. My eldest child was deeply unhappy. There was no work. There was no income. It was just a big old S storm. And I remember looking at myself and going, okay, what, what can I do here to create? Because if I'm not creating, then it's like a shark not swimming. You know what I mean? I have to keep creating in order to, to, to feel good. Um, and so I thought to myself, well, in this situation, I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And I remembered a conversation that I had with an old friend of mine, Alex Cap, very talented actress. And she was going through a very terrible divorce and had to sell her very large home with her two daughters and move into a 400 square foot garage that belonged to Trisha O'Kelly, her best friend. And they were going to co-parent together. It's kind of like a modern day Kate now. And I remember saying to her, wow, you are one bootstrap bitch. And she said to me, oh my God, you need to trademark that. And so I did. I'm in the process. And I was like, during COVID, I was like, what can I do? I thought, bootstrap bitch, the podcast. So my friend, Adam Ferrara, who played my husband on Why Women Kill, he produced the whole opening for me. And he taught me how to use the, the, the sound uh, along with my voiceover agents who walked me through how to do it. So thank you to Innovative. And the whole point of it is, it's like everybody sees what we post, but nobody sees where we're posting from. And nobody sees the actual reality. And people look at actors or actresses or, you know, or whatever, anybody that they look up to and go, oh, their life is so great. Well, guess what? My dear friend, husband cheated on her, had to leave her home and moved into a 400 square foot garage, right? Shit happens. When shit happens, how, sorry, I said the word, how do you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get on with the business of life in a somewhat graceful way with as much dignity as you can? And it was amazing to me, all the people that I reached out to, uh, Timmy Amundsen, uh, at the height of his career, you know, an escrow on a house, 
promoting a film in Florida has a massive stroke in a bathroom in a Floridian airport, you know, had to relearn how to walk, how to talk, how, and it is now on This Is Us. You know, my friend Judson Mills, who came from daytime, went from daytime hunk to, to nighttime primetime star to heroin addict in the street to playing bodyguard in the musical. It's like, how, how do you go from being so far down to raise yourself up? And these are the questions that I ask them. And it's amazing to me how incredibly, incredibly forthright and honest Maurice Bernard who's been Sonny Corinthos on General Hospital, he doesn't, I mean, he knows me, he knows of me, we're, we respect each other's work, and he obviously knows me through my husband, but we're certainly not friends. He agreed to do it in a heartbeat. He was like, anything for you. And he completely opened up to me about his mental illness, about his bipolar disorder, what that was like for him we cried together you know in the chat and uh, Michelle Stafford who's on Young and the Restless opened up about her fertility journey and her journey with surrogacy so I'm I'm, I'm doing this to show yeah we can all look in JLo's closet because JLo has a really really pretty closet but we don't see the stuff you know the grit and that's what I'm interested in and that's what I think is really helping the people like the three people who are listening to my podcast. You know what I mean? It's, I, I want to uplift people. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I want them, again, to see, okay, well, today I might be down in the dumps. Today, maybe I didn't get that job. Today, maybe, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I had a, you know, Timmy had a stroke, you know? Maurice has his episodes, but you know what? There's always tomorrow. And if you can keep the faith, and stay in the saddle and go where the day takes you, you'll, you'll be all right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, so it's Bootstrap Bitch and it's on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, it's on Google Play. Um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's really, I'm really, really proud of it. And our next step, we usually do a little uh, photograph on Mondays and then I do a teaser, Tuesday teaser a bootstrap bitch on Tuesdays with a little audiogram, which my dear friend Katie Cooper produces for me. And then uh, on Thursday, I published the, the full episode. So I'm really proud of it. And I'm proud of this one coming up with Michelle Stafford. She's, she's amazing. Again, a girl I met once in my life at an audition 30 million years ago, who was like, yeah, I'll come on, I'll talk. And, and it's amazing. That is. Yeah, it, it, it really is quite humbling that people will talk to me. Also, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm a, I can, I'm a good chatter. If you can, I can talk. I can talk to a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky tree. Um, here we are talking in 2021, making it 30 years since your Another World debut. What does that mean to you when you look back at where your life has gone since that moment three decades ago when you stepped into Bay City? Someone once told me that, you know, to deal with anxiety, you know, you have to try to envision your happy space. And my happy space is honestly my dressing room at the Brooklyn studios. That was really my happy place and my little apartment on West 87th, um, which I just had the realtor who remembered me go do a tour of it because I was just, I missed it. <laughs> And I wanted to know if it was like still available. Like maybe I could have like my own sex in the city, like apartment in New York. Like, I don't know what, whose life I think I'm living. Um, but this, you know, but I, that's my happy place. And, and, and even during the sadness, like the, the, the times that I thought were sad, I don't know what the hell I was talking about. There was nothing sad about that time at all. Now that I look past and it's been 22 years that I've been married and I have an 18-year-old child, and I have two other kids, and I have a dog and a mortgage and a car payment, and, and, and all of the, the pavement, all the road and the miles that I've traveled, I'm, I'm really proud of myself. And I'm, 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 I'm so thankful to all of the people that I've met along the way. And when I think about it, Steph, you were the very first and only interview I think I ever did during that time was with you. And I still have that, that, that issue of soap opera digest. And I remember you took me to dinner at Il Cantonori. Oh, wow. I remember that. 
And I mean, look at this. This is a friendship that has spanned for, you know, for decades. And, and Linda Dano is grandmother to my children. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I call her mama and the kids call her grandma Linda. And Anthony calls her mama Linda. And, you know, the... Allah, you know, it's, it's so, I, you know, it's, it's just an, it's an, it's an amazing life. Well, well traveled. And I'm really grateful for the people that, that have stuck with me. And also I have to say this huge shout out to the fans. I mean, these fans are by far and large, the most dedicated I don't even call them fans. I just call them family, family that I haven't met in person. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful to them because these people have followed me through everything that I've done. Right. You know, they, they really, they really have. Mm -hmm. the, the, the thing that I would be so interested in, cause I know they're doing an, uh, an all my children reboot is aren't Kelly and Mark, those crazy couples d doing the, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I think we need to do in another world one. Yeah, you're, you're talking to two people here who would be way on board for that. Your target audience in the house, and we agree. I, mean, yeah. I think that, I mean, really, every one of us could take a little bit of time off to do, or like even do like a Zoom, like reading. If anybody has like a, I'm sure I have a script somewhere. Like if we just, wouldn't that be fun? So much fun. Everybody to do like a Zoom, and we do it for like charity or something. Another idea for you, Alicia. <laughs> one more thing. One more thing that no one will listen to. Maybe a like, lot of people will listen to it. To do a shot-by-shot shot recreation of the Lady Killer video <laughs> on <Shot> Zoom. <laughs> Ricky would do it. Come on, <laughs> Ricky's game for anything. That's right. I'm um, telling you, that guy is like a village in a in one person. He yes, really, I don't. He's a village. I don't know what he's taking, but between acting, producing, building Greta a hair salon, flipping houses, raising two kids, I'm like, can I move in with you for like a week? Why, you're the West Coast counterpart, you're doing it all too. <laughs> I don't know, he seems to be doing it so much better than me. No, you're doing it great. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I try, I try. I try, but I do, I, I, I do, I do miss, I do miss the, the, um, I miss the closeness of daytime and the continuity and the, uh, the, just the seeing everybody every day. Like I love being part of, of, of a family. I love being part of a series. You know, it's why I don't do guest spots anymore. I don't, I don't want to do them. It's not that I don't like them, mm -hmm. um, but I can't get a hold on being part of a family because you're just jumping in right for you know mm -hmm. it's not where I want to be right now I need to be around the same people mm -hmm. you know, well would you join a soap if asked sure I mean I, I would never say never it would have to be it would have to be a really great role and um yeah that would be kind of fun why not well, let's put it out there. Um, put it out there in the universe. You never know. You never know. You never know who's listening. That's right. A lot of people listen, and they're going to listen to your podcast, too. So we thank you so much for joining us. Again, if you're listening to this podcast, be sure to listen to Bootstrap Bitch as well. And thank you, Alicia. You shared such amazing stories. I love catching up. Oh, my God. Thank you for, 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 for listening. You're the one. You're the two who listen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, Alicia. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Alicia Coppola for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Podcast.